Hey guys, hope you guys have had a great week and weekend. We apologize for not having a regularly scheduled episode. We are actually just about to record that right now on this Saturday morning, the 28th of July. But as a reward for your patience, we wanted to release one of our Patreon-only episodes as a sample for you guys. For some of you folks who are interested in our Patreon, we have an episode that comes out every month. And this episode that you're about to hear is our first Patreon-only episode. It's all about the fate of Sir Barristan Selmy. Yes, indeed. The fate of the White Knight, where Jeff and I disagree for once. <laughs> Shock, applause, horror. But we thought you might, guys might enjoy it. We had a fun discussion about what's coming next for Barristan Selmy and the possible paths he's going to take. So we hope you appreciate it. And uh, yes, I'm a, I'm, I was uh, moving this week to a new city, so I had to get all my stuff in position. So didn't quite have the time to record a new episode of the Chapter by Chapter podcast. But that's going to resume uninterrupted next week. Yes, it will. And if you guys are interested, please, please, please check out our friends at the Girls Gone Canon podcast. Their latest episode on Sir Barristan Selmy features myself, Jeff, otherwise known as Brandon Beefish, on there debating with Chloe and Elian about the fate of Sir Barristan, bringing in new, beautiful, wonderful arguments to the fore. So, hope you guys enjoy this episode. Again, our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash notacastasof. And the Girls Gone Canon podcast can be found at girlsgonecanon.podbean.com. See you guys next week. to a very special Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh no, not here. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our first Patreon-only episode entitled The Fate of the White Knight. Emmett's in my throwdown on what will become of Sir Barristan Selmy, in which I am right, and Emmett is obviously wrong. Working title, folks. We'll revisit that later. <laughs> I guess, I guess it is kind of a working title, but I mean, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, it should be, it should be a good throwdown, a good debate. You know, all the people have been saying that we we agree too much, we're, we're too much amen brother each other all the time, and it's time that we we settle, we we make things right to the general public that we're not all all about agreement. We're about agreement ninety eight, ninety nine percent of the time, but there's that one to two percent where. We just have to disagree because one of us is right and one of us is wrong. We just violently differ on when this particular sad old man will die. Not whether he will die. <laughs> Correct. But when. Yes. Yes. Such is the stuff that rivalries are made of, folks. Right. Yes. And it might seem like minutia at first, but it's actually not totally minutia because there is some important distinctions to be made in, uh, in, in talking about that. And that's going to be a, a really fun and engaging discussion I can't wait to have with you, sir. Exactly. I think when you talk about the fate of a character, obviously, there's just the kind of uh, cheesy fun of who's going to be on the death list and who's not um, that you get with kind of any story where a lot of there's a lot of casualties. But I think <laughs> if uh, if, you know, if you... Uh, look at it another way, you know, talking about the fate of the character is talking about what you think a character means, what the author is trying to say with that character, how the, the themes and uh, narrative elements of that character are going to end up. 
So, uh, you know, in part, we're going to be talking about what we think is going to be happening to Barristan Selmy, but also just about Barristan Selmy as a character and how we interpret him and how we think our, our projected endgame fits with that interpretation. And, you know, it's interesting, too. I think this is a, a great conversation to have because I almost feel like that some of the major endpoints are already kind of theorized and kind of agreed on. We can Martin has said that the ending will be bittersweet. He has said that not everyone will die at the conclusion of A Song of Ice and Fire. To me, that reads like that the others will ultimately be defeated, that there's not going to be this that evil triumphs at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. I think that's uh, something that Martin is, is not going to do because he is not writing grim, dark uh, fantasies, as we talk about in the edit episode you guys just listened to. Um, but some of these smaller topics, but still important topics, like the fate of Sir Barristan Selmy, who is an important character in his own right. He is a point of view character. At least he becomes one at the end of A Dance of Dragons and continues into The Winds of Winter. Um, it, it's something that's uh, it's worth talking about, but it's I, I don't feel, even though I'll present arguments and Emmett will do the same, I don't feel that this is something that I'm going to, this is my hill to die on necessarily, that Barristan is going to survive Marine and live on to die in Westeros. I'd be whatever the story that Martin tells is going. I assume is going to be something that I'll enjoy and something that I'll enjoy reading about and thinking about for the years to come. Whenever the Winds of Winter comes out, uh, but yeah, I I do think this is uh, this is something that's that's worth debating and talking about because it does kind of get into the type of story that Martin is telling, even if it's not necessarily an end game type theory that we're talking about here. For sure, and we picked this topic in particular because I think there's a strong evidence for uh, both sides of the debate we're going to have here. No one's stretching into tinfoil territory. And uh, because Barristan is, well, not one of the top tier most uh, <laughs> prominent or important characters in the story, is still a very important character in terms of a lot of the central themes and questions that the series has about knighthood, about doing your duty, about how you uh, stick to your ideals in a world that uh, corrupts or doesn't reward them. Yep. Uh, Barristan is really central to a lot of those questions. And uh, again, talking about his fate and what that's going to mean is a, a way we can uh, talk about those themes uh, not in an abstract way, which sometimes we do, but in a more character-focused way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, that kind of brings us to kind of the point of this Patreon campaign and these specific Patreon episodes. So as you folks are listening, you have subscribed to our Patreon for at least $5 a month. And we thank all of you for that. And uh, like we said in the last episode, which is that sample we th- episode that we think that A Dance with Dragons is a better book than A Storm of Swords, you'll be getting at least one of these episodes per month. I mean, that's, only, that's if you subscribe for only $5 a month. Not anything more than that. Um, like Emmett said, our intent in doing these special episodes, these special Patreon episodes is to broaden out from our usual chapter by chapter talks and discuss some of the topics that interest us more broadly. Things like theories, things like character discussion, meta, and, you know, the things that if you follow us on social media or read some of the things that we've been writing about for the past couple of years is where we make our bread and butter. And, uh, and yeah, it's just something that we, enjoy and we're, we're glad that a lot of you guys seem to be uh, interested enough to want to participate and uh, and contribute and we thank you guys all very very much yes indeed we do so yeah uh without further ado um we won't do questions or we won't do 
news or updates or anything like that. We're just going to dive straight into this because I think this is what that this is what you guys want us to do. So, uh, spoiler warning: as we say in all podcasts, both on the chapter by chapter as well as these Patreon special episodes. Our spoilers are for all of the published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, and the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. And just a special note, this will be very heavy on the Winds of Winter sample chapters because a lot of what we'll talk about details some of the events that transpire after the conclusion of A Dance with Dragons. So if you're not wanting to get spoiled on the Winds of Winter whatsoever, totally fine. Uh, we will look forward to having more discussions on this uh, this Patreon special podcast feed, which won't necessarily involve the Winds of Winter topics. But this one, by necessity of the topic, has to involve the Winds of Winter, in my opinion. Yes, indeed. Although I say for the record, if you haven't read The Forsaken, I feel so bad for you. Yes. Like, what's it What's it like being an incomplete human being, guys? Or the... Or- you know the Theon chapter. I mean, that's. I mean, or I know the Theon I, chapter. I know the Forsaken is, is amazing your, too. Is your thing, but for me, it's it's the Theon chapter. Will still have a special place in my heart, and the Arian chapters, and the Tyrion chapters, and the they're Barrison all pretty chapters. good. Yeah. They're all real good. <laughs> they're, they're all pretty. Is good. what we're saying here. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and you know, they were intended for a Dance of Dragons originally at one point in Martin's conception. So if you look at it that way, maybe that'll convince you to read the Winds of Winter sample chapters. But if not, totally fine. It's your call. This is America, and we have freedom. Amen, brother. <laughs> there we go. First shot away. So um, let's talk briefly about Barristan Selmy's story to date. Let's talk a little bit about the objectivity portion of it before we get into the opinion. And what better way to talk about Barristan's story to date than to get Barristan Selmy's autobiography as stated in the White Book. And this comes from Jamie's eighth chapter in A Storm of Swords. And I will be doing a dramatic reading of it. So, Sir Barristan of House Selmy, firstborn son of Sir Lionel Selmy of Harvest Hall, served as squire to Sir Manfred Swan, named the Bold in his tenth year, when he donned borrowed armor to appear as a mystery knight in the tourney of Blackhaven, where he was defeated and unmasked by Duncan, Prince of Dragonflies, knighted in his sixteenth year by King Aegon V Targaryen, after performing great feats of prowess as a mystery knight in the winter tourney at King's Landing, defeating Prince Duncan the Small and Sir Duncan the Tall, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, slew Maelys the Monstrous, last of the Blackfire Pretenders in single combat during the War of the Nine Penny Kings, defeated Lormel, Long Lance, and Cedric Storm, the Bastard of Bronzegate, named to the King's Guard in his 23rd year by Lord Commander Sir Gerald Hightower, defended the passage against all challengers in the tourney of the Silver Bridge, victor in the melee at Maidenpool, brought King Aerys II to safety during the defiance of Duskendale, despite an arrow wound in the chest. Avenged the murder of his sworn brother, Sir Gwen Gaunt, rescued Lady Jane Swan and her scepter from the Kingswood Brotherhood, defeating Simon Toyne in the Smiling Knight, slaying the former. And the old town tourney defeated and unmasked the Mystery Knight, Black Shield, revealing him to be the Bastard of Uplands. Sole champion Lord Stephen's tourney at Storm's End, whereat he unhorsed Lord Robert Baratheon, Prince Oberyn Martell, Lord Leighton Hightower, Lord John Connington, Lord Jason Malister, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, 
wounded by arrow, spear, and sword at the Battle of the Trident, whilst fighting alongside his sworn brothers and Prince Rhaegar of Dragonstone, pardoned and named Lord Commander of the King's Guard by King Robert I Baratheon, served in the honor guard that brought Lady Cersei of House Lannister to King's Landing to wed King Robert, led his attack on Old Wick during Balon Greyjoy's rebellion, champion of the tourney at the King's Landing in his 57th year, dismissed by King Joffrey I Baratheon in his 61st year for reasons of advanced age. Mwah, mwah, good sir. Well, thank you. And of course, thank you to George for writing that fantastic autobiography that, that Barrison has there, uh, where Jamie gets to read that. But that's not all of Sir Barrison's story in, in A Song of Ice and Fire, as, as we come to find out. So his autobiography in the White Book ends with him being dismissed by King Joffrey Baratheon. And uh, Emmett and I both thought it was funny that Barristan found the time somehow while being hunted by all of the golden cloaks and all of the, the folks that, that Joffrey and Cersei had sent after him to finish his biography by saying he was dismissed by, by Joffrey in his 61st year for advanced age before he took ship for Pentos. So he takes a ship from King's Landing to Pentos and uh, he meets up with Illyrio. Did Varys get him there? Maybe. We're not entirely sure. That's That hasn't come out yet, but it seems likely, or at least it seems congruent with Varys getting Barrison out of the city and shepherding him to his friend across the narrow sea in Pentos. I mean, that does seem kind of very coincidental, uh, if not directed. And uh, from there... Uh, it's interesting. So we, we know by the end, by the middle of A Dance with Dragons, that Illyrio and Varys are in, in cahoots with each other in order to bring Aegon, otherwise known as Young Griff, and the Golden Company to Westeros in order to seat Young Griff or Aegon VI or actually Aegon Blackfire, laugh out loud, to in, onto the Iron Throne. But why did Illyrio send Barristan to Daenerys Targaryen instead of to Aegon and the Golden Company? I'll pause the, the narrative here and just ask the question straight up to, to Ammon. Why in the world did Illyrio send the, one of the best soldiers and commanders in all of Westeros to Danny at that point in the story, in your opinion? There's a couple possibilities. Maybe he was more concerned about controlling Danny at, this, at that point than controlling Aegon who he thought was well under his thumb and he needed someone with authority and connection to Westeros uh, to kind of bring the bring the Dragon Queen to heel, maybe? I'm not sure. What do you think, Jeffington? Uh, I, I feel like that's probably accurate. I, I think there's also the potential at that point in the story that Illyrio and Varys' plan was to marry Aegon to Daenerys after Daenerys birthed dragons on the Dothraki Sea. So having Barristan in Danny's camp kind of helps to, and and also Barristan's purpose in being sent to Karth after to grab Daenerys was to bring Danny, her dragons, and her small party back to Pentos in order to uh, to be housed at Illyrio's manse, and then I think, in my opinion, then to meet up with Aegon uh, to be married to Aegon. But that's supposition on my part. It's it's not been revealed in the text itself, but those. I feel like both of our little theories kind of work congruently with each other. Um, they could both be accurate. They could both be wrong too. There might be another purpose in, in sending Barrison over to Karth and sending instead of sending him down to the down to the uh, to the Roin to uh, meet up with John Connington and uh, and Aegon the Sixth. Um, anyhow, uh, 
that aside, Barrison took a ship with Grolio and Strong Belwas over to Karth. He meets up with Karth, where he saves Danny's life by killing the Manticore and joins Danny's service. Then he returns back onto Grolio's ship, and he, with Daenerys and her small party, and they're traveling back to Panos, which they actually do not, because they end up at Astapor, and then Yunkai, and then Marine, where Daenerys Targaryen brings fire and blood to the slavers of Slaver's Bay. In Marine, he trains Freeman Knights, constantly urging Danny to go back to Westeros instead of Marine. And then at the end of A Dance with Dragons, he is plotting against Hisdar's Olorak after Daenerys Targaryen flies away from Daznak's pit. And then he succeeds in overthrowing him along with Skahaz Mokandak. And then as we turn to the opening pages of The Winds of Winter, he's in the Battle of Fire where he's up against the legions of Nukis, the slave legions of Yunkai, the Telosi Slingers, the Carthine Camel Corps, all of the uh, the assembled allied slaver armies, and he is leading the charge against them in the Battle of Fire. And that is kind of it's it's kind of a bit of a um, a summarization of of, of Barrison and where he uh, what he does in the plot of A Song of Ice and Fire. And there's a lot more depth and details that I kind of skipped over, so I apologize for that if anyone's looking for that. But let's move beyond that for the for the moment because we are going to be talking about some of these areas in the discussion to come. Emmett, do you think that Barristan Selmy is a good guy? I think Barristan Selmy believes good things and is trying the hardest he can to be a good person. Uh, I think he has fallen prey to the same thing Jamie fell prey to that he describes in Catalan's last chapter in The Clash of Kings, where he talks about the endlessly contradictory nature of oaths and uh, attempting to keep your vows in a society that won't let you do it. I think Barristan has faced similar issues but is less self-aware about it than Jamie and was uh, less willing to take radical steps to deal with it for good or ill than Jamie. Hmm. Uh, so I think Barristan, for me, examines the same issues from a more conformist point of view, where Barristan uh, believes in knighthood and its role in society much more than Jamie did, at least until he met Brienne. Hmm. Uh, so I think, I mean, I th- Barristan, I think, is a well-intentioned guy who <laughs> uh, cares about people and wants to do right, but... I think uh, the way he conceived knighthood and the way he conceived his oath led him to, uh, if not take part in, then allow to happen some pretty terrible things. I don't hold him responsible for what Eris did, but I do hold him responsible for not stopping Eris from doing it. Yeah. Yeah. The best comparison I have is is not going to be a very kind one to Barrison. It's of a the German officer corps prior to Nazi Germany, who were basically – they had served the Kaiser – and they were mostly Prussian nobility that then were incorporated into the Nazi army. And they disliked Hitler from what we can from a lot of them. Some of them did not all of them, but some of them did like folks like uh, actually I was about to say Rommel, but Rommel is actually kind of a Nazi. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, there are some that, I'm, that I'm, I think uh, Mannstadt and some of the other ones that were in in, uh, in the German army in the, in the Wehrmacht in World War II. They disliked Hitler. They were more of the conservative nobility. But they didn't do anything to stop Hitler. They followed his orders and they they didn't um, really do anything besides feel guilty about it afterwards. And a number of them were uh, were tried by the by the Nuremberg court for their actions in the Nazi regime. Um, but, yeah, I, I do agree that he has noble ideals and he values and he tends to prioritize his values. Um, I would say that honor, obedience and loyalty are among his highest Virtues, and but they are also the virtues that get him in the most moral trouble 
when you have the the issue of Eris the second burning people and massacring entire families down to the, almost the last child. Barrison can do nothing but plead for the life of one child. And as admirable as that is, you also kind of think, Barrison, why, why in the world didn't you stop Ares from killing all these people? You had all the you had Tywin Lannister's army around you, you had Rhaegar Targaryen standing right there. You had the potential to end it all right there. But he doesn't. He chooses to to uphold his vows and his his loyalty. And those vows and loyalties, as I said before, get him into a lot of trouble um, because then he serves Robert Baratheon and Robert Baratheon is not the greatest king. And then after that, he serves Joffrey. Even after Ned Stark uh, confronts Joffrey in the in the Red Keep throne room, he doesn't waver from his loyalty. I don't think he picks up a sword necessarily against Ned's men in in the Red Keep, but he doesn't do anything to uh, help Ned Stark, even though he is a bit of an ally to Ned in the Game of Thrones, as we're going to be covering covering in the main podcast here in, in, in the next couple months. But yeah, I, 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 I really like his arc. I, I like Barrison as a character, as a, as a person, as a good guy. I don't think he's necessarily a good guy. I think he believes he's a good guy. Uh, I think he believes himself to be a hero in the story, and he has a very heroic background in history as we as that whole introductory monologue um, talked about. But but yeah, I think it's a, he's a fascinating character and he brings up a lot of the great questions of A Song of Ice and Fire. What virtues do you uphold? Uh, oh, oh, which virtues do you prioritize? Do you prioritize your vows, your loyalty, your honor, a sense of ethics? What happens if you're serving a bad king? What happens when the king dismisses you from his service? What do you do then? And I think this is a, it's a, Barrison is very, um, uh, fertile fodder or fertile fodder. He's, he's very fertile ground for George to kind of explore some of the questions of a song of ice and fire. And I do love his character for that, but I, I think he often chooses the wrong side morally. Uh, until he doesn't. And then he kind of does again, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk all about that soon. I'm sure. Yeah, it's Barristan knows what the right thing for him to do on an individual to individual basis is, but he has difficulty thinking about larger systems and institutions and how they function. Yeah, and uh, and what his role in that is, and he's similar to Ned as Hand in King's Landing in that way, which is kind of why they make natural allies and parallels in that first book. And I, you brought up him. Uh, convincing heirs to spare Dantos Hollard's life and it, it struck me as an interesting parallel and contrast with uh, Davos on Dragonstone can, uh, mm. trying to save Edric Storm's life Yeah, and that they're both uh, you know trying to spare this one child uh, from getting killed by a king but Davos connects it to a larger system of values where he tells Stannis that you know a king protects his people or he has no king at all and if you want to set the throne you have to show yourself worthy of it and act as king save the kingdom to be worthy of, of the crown you're claiming yeah. and think of your duty and not just your rights and that's something that Barristan I would argue has not done he right. was not able to articulate an overall philosophy that explained why Eris was wrong all he was able to do is save the one life which is great but it's not systemic enough. It's not enough of a critique of the overall thought process that got you to the situation where the kid almost died. Ned and, and Barrison are very similar. And um, I, I've written a little bit in the past, and I'll link to this in, in the show notes, about how George, in writing A Dance with Dragons, at least the end game of A Dance with Dragons and Marine, essentially 
rewrote a bit of his plot from Game of Thrones, where you have Barristan taking on the Ned Stark role. You have Skahas Mokandak taking on the Littlefinger type role, in my opinion, although that hasn't been fully been realized yet. And I'm sure we will, it will be realized come the Winds of Winters. We'll talk about it here in a few minutes. Um, but there is a difference between Ned and Barristan in that in, is it Eddard 7 or 8, where Robert just says he's going to send a hard knife after Daenerys, Targaryen, and Viserys. Ned says, no, you can't do that. I, I disagree emphatically. And Barristan says the same thing. Like, we, that's not an honorable way to deal with our enemies, Your Grace. Ned, though, at the end where Robert says, I'm, fuck it, I'll do it anyways. Ned says, fine, you do that. I'm not your hand. I won't have blood on my hands. And he resigns his handship temporarily. But as, as a moral, and that I feel like that's a moral act. Whereas that Barristan doesn't, that's the extent of Barristan's morality here and that he says it's I, I disagree with this but he's still going to serve robert regardless of him disagreeing with it and i do think that is an interesting contrast between the two even though they are very similar in a lot of ways ned is willing to sacrifice his office in order to make a moral stand barristan though isn't at least so far well i remember that uh, speech Varys gives to ned about uh, how he's robert's only friend and Robert protests, I mean, Ned protests and says that there must be other people who care about Robert and Varys is saying that, you know, well, his brothers hate the Lannisters. That doesn't mean they love him. Grandmaster Pycelle loves his office. Littlefinger lo- loves Littlefinger. <laughs> and Sir Barristan loves his honor. Yes. Which he specifically brought up as a reason Barristan would not protect Robert above all. And right. I think you ended up seeing that in the throne room where Barristan protests a little bit when Cersei rips up Robert's will. But then he just freezes. Like, that's what the most famous, glorious, active, dashing knight of all time does in one of the most uh, tense, charged moments in Westerosi history is he stands there while everyone else kills somebody. Yes. And I think that's representative of the situation Barristan finds himself in at that point in his story where it's he's gotten too passive and simply mildly objecting isn't enough anymore and he has to, he has to find a different way of acting as a knight. That being said, you know, I love... You know, there's a, a great, I think, resonance between what he says in that small council meeting about to Robert about how there's uh, honor in facing your foe in the battlefield but not in his mother's womb, and what he says to the shave pate in A Dance with Dragons about the cupbearers, which is uh, you kill men for the wrongs they have done, not the wrongs they may do someday. Right. Uh, which I think is a, a great philosophy that uh, does link him up with Ned and this idea that, you know, that that, that kind of... Machiavellian justice that is being brought up in these situations about, you know, killing Dany so that, you know, thousands won't die in war, uh, is there's a there's there's a, a brutality to that that Barristan is just not comfortable with. Yeah. When I love I love him in Astapor when uh they're looking at the slave market and the the masters are describing these unbelievably hideous things they do to these people. You know, uh, force them to kill uh, puppies and infants, and like setting bears loose on him in the stadium, and Barrison's fury just coming out through the tapping of his cane on the bricks. <laughs> uh, that is a great touch, and I do, I do love that he's. You know, when we talk about the hypocrisy of knighthood as it's pre- presented in *The Song of Ice and Fire*, often we're talking about knights who don't care about their vows at all and just act like brigands or outright monsters to the yeah. small folk. Uh, but Barristan's hypocrisy is at a different level in terms of the people he serves. His act- his attitudes towards uh, the downtrodden and the people he's sworn to protect, for the most part, are, are really solid and and, a, and a sure. cut above most knights we see in the story. So that's what keeps that's what that's what I like about him. I like most. I like a lot about him as a character, but that's what I like about him as a person. 
I, I would agree with that. And I do think that he is not Gregor Clegane and he's not any of these kind of monsters or these kind of like run the mill knights. He's not Sir Hyle Hunt either. He's he's just a he's a cut above and he's he's a great warrior for sure as well. And that's something that, that I admire in him. Um, I do, as we're going to talk about here, his uh, conduct in the Battle of Fire so far has been extraordinary and heroic and extremely tactically proficient and I am uh, I got a real thrill reading the um, those Winds of Winter sample chapters and reading some summaries of them because we don't have the Barrison 2 as a complete chapter we just have a great summary of it by a westeros.org user who I don't remember off the top of my head but I apologize to that person if they're listening but uh, but yeah I, uh, I there are things to admire about Barrison to be sure um, and, but I do agree that he still has a lot of hypocrisy going on and, you know, he's also placed in extremely difficult circumstances as well, being a sworn, sworn sword and shield of the king and of really of, of three bad kings, Ares, Robert, and then Joffrey, before he comes over to Daenerys Targaryen in search of the one true king. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting in, in A Dance with Dragons when Danny questions Barristan a little bit more. Barristan admits that he was originally coming over to Essos to find, um, to search out Viserys to see if he was the one true king and was worthy of his service. But he ends up finding uh, the Targaryens after, or rather the one Targaryen, Daenerys, after Viserys has received his crown of gold from Khal Drogo. And um, he comes to admire Danny. He, he, you know, at, at the end of his arc, he says, I am a king's, I am a queen's man once and forever. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think that's, uh, there, there's something to be said for that of, of him searching for the one true king after he's dismissed from his service. Uh, of course, I would have preferred if, uh, in the best of all my fan fiction world, that Barristan shows up at the side of the one true king. That is, of course, Stannis Baratheon. And we've gotten our Stannis quota out of the way for our, for this one episode. <laughs> Gotta slip one in. You know, I remember reading the first book. And thinking that was going to happen, because when Barristan storms out of the throne room after Joffrey dismisses it, he throws his sword at Joffrey's feet and says, perhaps your uncle Stannis will chance to sit on it when he takes your throne, uh, which is a great line. I'm so sorry that they didn't do that in the show, because otherwise they did that scene almost word for word, but they left that part out. Uh, and this is before we even meet Stannis. So I was, I remember reading the first book and thinking, oh, okay, Barristan's going to be, maybe that's our entryway to the Stannis guy we keep thinking about. Didn't turn out to be the case. And I do love in Clash of Kings that, uh, like, they keep bringing up that no one knows where Barristan is. Like, yes. Renly asks Catelyn if Barristan's with Rob, and then he says uh, he must be with Stannis. And then, then he, it's a great reveal when he he shows up in the most obvious pseudonym of all time, Arston Whitebeard, <laughs> at the end of a Clash of Kings. Yes. Fooling no one. Except for me. I, I, I never said that in our Dance with Dragons episode, but yeah, I was, I was fooled the first time I read. I, I apologize in advance. For shame, Jeff. I usually don't pick up on things the first time, but that is when I managed. That is when I pulled off. Just uh, because of simply because of the way he was introduced, just the, the sheer badassery of the move with the manticore. Yeah. Uh, if, he, if he had just walked up as an old white bearded squire, I might not have. But the combination of that with Arston, which is just a couple letters off, I was like, <laughs> I know who you are. Um but so yeah, so that's uh, that's our take on on Barristan Selmy to date as we've gone through uh, the five books, creeping into a sixth book. But uh, now I believe we have to move to the main event and get in the pit, son. That's right. That's right. Let's let's get ready to throw down. Um, so uh, I, I figure we would start by uh, each saying our 
the essence of our argument. So if you take nothing away from this episode, you at least take away what Emmett and I both believe in. Uh, I will start, and that is a more affirmative, although it's not ultimately affirmative. Um, my take on Barristan Selmy's fate is that he will survive the Battle of Fire, but he will live on to turn cloak on Daenerys Targaryen in favor of Aegon the Sixth Targaryen. Actually, Blackfire. Ha ha ha. He will eventually die, but on the second field of fire, not the Battle of Fire. And uh, my overall take on what's going to happen to Barristan is that uh, after winning the Battle of Fire, he's going to return to Marine to find that the Shave Pate, who he helped overthrow Hisdar and entrusted with Hisdar and the child hostages that Barristan's been trying to keep alive. And that the Shave Pate has been trying to kill, that Barristan will discover that the Shave Pate has massacred them all along with the rest of his enemies inside Meereen, and that uh, this will lead to a throwdown between Barristan and the Brazen Beasts, the Shave Pate's men, and that uh, Barristan will die as a result of this throwdown. Interesting. I, uh, I could definitely understand where you're coming from. But you're wrong. He's being so gentle, so delicate. I love it. A, a, a true gentleman in every sense of the word. Um, I, I guess. I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll figure out by the end of this podcast how much of a gentleman I actually am. And I'm not. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so it's um, – I think the, the fate of Barrison is, is a great question. And for me, when I was thinking about this, uh, I felt like – that there is essentially, in my mind, there are essentially three reasons why I think that Barrison is going to survive the Battle of Fire and he's going to turn cloak on Daenerys Targaryen in favor of Aegon. So I'll list them out uh, very briefly. The first narrative purpose is that Barrison's search for the one true king or queen worthy of his service hasn't been brought to its fullest narrative conclusion yet. Number two, Daenerys Targaryen is too OP for the coming Dance of the Dragons, something that George has said we will see at some point down the road, and that is likely going to be the coming war between Aegon and Daenerys Targaryen. So Danny was going to need dangerous enemies. Adding Barristan to Aegon's side gives her a very dangerous enemy, one versed in Danny's army of Unsullied and Sellswords and their tactics. One who's also is well acquainted with Danny's dragons, their strengths, their weaknesses, and one who has been sit standing at Danny's side for a long, long time and knows Danny's mindset itself and knows the things that will piss her off or knows the things that are that her weaknesses and strengths. And then finally, and third, most importantly, my reason by the narrative, the reason, the narrative reason why I believe that Barristan Selmy will survive the Battle of Fire to turn cloak on Danny is that a betrayal by Barristan Selmy does wonders and waking the dragon in Daenerys. Maybe she'll think of him as one of her prophesied betrayals, but even if she doesn't, she's going to be damn mad. Mad enough to unleash her dragons against Westeros. Kind of similar in my mind to what I think is going to happen when Aegon is revealed to Danny, most likely by Tyrion, come the Winds of Winter. And I will toss it over to you to give your reasons why you think that Barristan will die at the Battle of Fire instead of live on to Turncloak. Well, the way I look at uh, Barristan's uh, solo arc in A Dance with Dragons continuing to the Winds of Winter is kind of a, a last hurrah for this guy with a quite a storied career. Like, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the moment in the Western when the old gunslinger goes on. You know, uh, one, one last hurrah when the, the cop that's about to retire takes that one last job. You know, it's it feels to me like the culmination of all the kind of themes and ideas that he's been dealing with his whole life and his whole characterization. Whether you're talking about the king breaking with Hisdar and how that kind of 
for me, is a kind of second chance he got at toppling an unworthy king that he never did with Eris. That's kind of how I interpret uh, what the king-breaking means for Barristan in his arc. Uh, or getting involved in politics and taking an affirmative role, an institutional role that I was saying earlier he had failed to do. And then you have this chapter called The Queen's Hand, <laughs> and he's like leading a council session and setting policy. You know, all the things that I think ideally someone in his position and prominence and gravitas should be doing and he had never done before. Uh, so, you know, or or the Battle of Fire itself, which, as you pointed out, is uh, he's he's in his absolute prime tactically and in terms of the, the thrill and the romance of the battle, like for me, this feels uh, it feels like it's all coming to a head for his character. Okay. Uh, and 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 that suggests to me it's that it's a blaze of simultaneous glory and horror for him. Like he's he's riding into the sunset and then he catches on fire. Because <laughs> um, for me, the uh, the other element of what's going on here is you have what's what looks like an unbroken string of triumphs for Barristan. Yeah. Uh, over the course of the, the the last act of A Dance with Dragons and going to the Winds of Winter, where he secures an ally in the Shave Pate. Uh, he uh, successfully overthrows Hisdar. He seizes the government of Marine. He gets people behind him to bring the war to the Yunkish. He gathers his army together. He's got the squires. He's riding out with the signal. Uh, from what we've seen of the Winds of Winter's chapter, the Yunkish are getting their asses handed to them by the combination <laughs> of Barristan and Victarion. Yes. And uh, one of both of our favorite moments in the story with uh, the, the joyful ending to Barristan's second chapter, as we've seen it so far, uh, where Barristan compares himself and Victarion to uh, Baylor and Mykar Targaryen. Yes. Uh, and as the Hammer and Anvil at Redgrass Field and uh, shouts joyously, we have them, we have them, yeah. which is a great inspiring moment and strikes me as the kind of moment that in this series is going to be immediately undercut <laughs> by something. In the same way that uh, Rob won every battle and still lost the war because he he trusted the wrong people and didn't fully think through his political decisions, I think Barristan's joy is going to turn to ashes when he comes back to Marine and find that uh, trusting the shape was the wrong move. Because I think, and this is kind of like an ancillary theory stuff, I think there are lots of signs, and we largely agree on this, that yes. the shape poisoned the locust at yes. Death's Pit. That he uh, lied, he framed, even though his dar is a horrible person and is a, clearly one of the sons of the harpy and a slaver and was yes. uh, trying to reintroduce slavery, he was not guilty of this particular crime. Right. And the shape pate framed him, which is an, a very George R. R. Martin kind of esque irony, I think, that you have an objectively terrible person, but in the same way that the Lannisters were awful and trying to take over the crown, but they actually didn't kill John Aaron, right. the thing they were being framed for. Yes. In the same way, I think Hisdar is being framed for the one thing he didn't do. Yeah. And uh, the Shape Pate has manipulated Barristan, as you say, in a very little finger Ned kind of way, uh, into uh, helping overthrow Hisdar. And I think I think there there has to be dramatic consequences for that. I think one can easily disagree on whether they're going to be fatal consequences for Barristan, but the way it's structured so far with uh, the kind of, like I said, string of successes for Barristan and the sense of, a, for me, at least a culmination of a story suggests to me that it is going to be a uh, a sharp drop and a sudden stop indeed once the bottom falls out. Interesting. And I, I, I will say this. So I, I, I do have one kind of sub assumption, sub theory to kind of my my, my argument. And, and it, it's going to be a little bit different from yours, but there's a there's a little bit of common ground. Um, I do think there is going to be an attempt on Barrison's life during the Battle of Fire. Um, I don't think it'll be after the Battle of Fire in, in, back in Marine. I think that the person who's going to be responsible for this are going to be the pit fighters, the ones who are shouting, Hisdar, Hisdar, as they rush out into the battle. Um, 
But I, as a bit of a, a twist on that, I do wonder whether some of the people around Barristan will save his life. And there's two people, there's four people actually in, in that I, that I cite. Um, one of which is two of the two of which are two of his newly made knights, his squires, that is Tomko Lowe and the Red Lamb. Uh, the Red Lamb, you may know from the Battle of Fire saying, I came for blood, not for gold, as he beheads one of the Yunkish slavers, which is kind of a fuck yeah moment in, in the Battle of Fire for sure. Uh, I, I do think it's a possibility that one of them might save Barrison, and that might be capturing Martin's romantic heart because he is writing a bit with a bit of romanticism there. Barrison is also side by side with two cell swords in the Battle of Fire. That is Jokin and the Widower. They're both storm crows that have taken over the storm crows since Dario is now a hostage of the Yunkish, as terms of the agreement that Daenerys Targaryen signed. Um, and I think that might appeal to Martin's sense of irony if two sellswords save the noble Barristan Selmy from being killed on, on the battlefield, given how much that Barristan disdains sellswords and talks loudly and often about how much he th- thinks that sellswords would, are, are not worth a damn on, on the battlefield or off the battlefield. Um, but uh, here's, here's the thing that will be uh, a bit of agreement. I do think that Barrison is going to get himself injured or wounded in the Battle of Fire. Uh, I believe that Emmett, you would say he gets wounded to the point of dying. Uh, so he gets severely, severely wounded, whereas I would say that his the wound, worst kind of wound, the yeah. worst kind of wound. Right. Uh, whereas I would say that it's I don't think he'll die from his wounds. And I do think that will does it does a bit of addresses the 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 great point you bring up about that. Barrison's seeming victory gets turned into ashes if he ends up getting stabbed on the battlefield, saved by, by the cell swords or his or his um, or his squires. Uh, but but at, at the same time, though, it's um, that I, I do think that Barrison is going to need to be out of commission early in the Winds of Winter after the Battle of Fire. And part of the reason why I think that'll be the case is that you really want to have Tyrion Lannister step into the role as Tyrion Lannister because – I think that we both agree on this point, at least, that Tyrion's arc in The Winds of Winter, at least early on, is going to be a very Tyrion Lannister in a Clash of Kings arc, as we find out. Maybe maybe he's going to be this. My, my theory is that he's going to be taking on the role of puzzling out who is the harpy and figuring and finally figuring out that the green grace actually is the harpy and you should not be trusting her. And, uh, Skahaz Mokandak is the little figure type character, but you know, that's, that remains to be seen how much of, Mar- how much of the time the Winds of Winter is going to spend in Marine? I hope he spends at least some time there. I agree. Tyrion seems uniquely poised to play that kind of disruptor exposer role, given his general personality and intelligence. That seems uh, very likely, and there's a lot of, I think, a lot of good comedy to be mined out of that. And I, yeah, I, uh, I like your your narrative purposes definitely for that direction of Barristan's arc. I think I, I I agree with like the importance of each of those themes. I just think they're. Uh, either already answered or answered differently, I think, than than you do. Like okay. uh, for for me, for me, Barristan's relationship to service and how he thinks about being uh, in service to a to a monarch was uh, largely, for me, cathartically answered by the king breaking. Okay, uh, from the from the title of that chapter on down, like that felt to me like, like I said, like almost like a, a recreation of his relationship to Eris, but done correctly, where he. Uh, even the way his door like freaks out as a coward and like 
spazzes and like runs away and sobs felt very much like how Eris dies from Jamie's yes. memory. Yes. Uh, like the, just the crying and the crawling away that felt very, hmm. uh, felt very Eris-esque. Never thought of um, that way. That's good. So like, if, I, I totally agree that that's a central theme in Barristan's arc and that, uh, that needs to be addressed. And I think it totally could be addressed in the way you're describing where he, uh, turns on Danny as, as Eris-esque and moves to Egan Six. Or the the boy purported to be Egan Six, six. <laughs> uh, but for me, reading a dance with dragons, admittedly without your theory in mind, that's okay. Uh, it felt like that was that was a natural, uh, natural enough, natural enough climax. Um, D- Danny being overpowered is, is an excellent point, um, and I go back and forth on this in terms of how long her uh, engagement with Egan is actually going to be. Yeah, not literal engagement, but you know, military engagement with Egan is actually going to be because there's. Uh, obviously a, a lot of subplots to get through and and she's coming out with multiple dragons and like, yeah. the Red Priests and the Dothraki. Uh, so, we, uh, you know, obviously we're certainly going to see something of a, of a fight like Dothraki versus the Golden Company seems set up pretty strongly as the fight to end all fights once, yeah. once the two Targaryens come come head to head. Um, but yeah, I, won- I wonder if... It, it might be the point that Danny goes in overpowered and squishes Egan relatively quickly like a bug. Yeah. And that, and that the point there is to show what a kind of overpowered monster in that moment <laughs> she's become. But, but especially, but then again, the way it's described in Orion's first Winds of Winter chapter from the, uh, it seems green dream having a girl, Tiora Toland, who says that the dragons were dancing in her dreams and wherever the dragons danced, the people died. That suggests a more, Longer. At least lo- longer and more equally matched engagement than that. Yeah. Um, so uh, Barristan serving at Egan's side could, could uh, certainly play a role in that. In terms of the, the betrayal of Barristan adding to Danny's dragon wrath, it certainly would. I feel like it might be redundant in that regard, given that she's kind of already taken the dark turn on the Dothraki Sea, and there's... Uh, she's gonna have to process Illyrio uh, turning on her, which for yeah. me I've always held up as the as the moment she really, uh, the combination of Illyrio having having had someone in mind the whole time, uh, and thus betraying Viserys as well as her, which I think will rub her raw, and and just the uh, likelihood that Egan's not real, I think will piss her off as well. <laughs> so while while it would certainly add to her wrath, I don't know if it's. I don't know if she needs another source of that. For me, Danny going dark is pretty strongly set up with the, the kind of the materials we have. Yeah. Uh, so that's not not to say I think it wouldn't work. It's just to say I don't know if it's a, a necessary component. So let, let me ask you a uh, a, a side question. So in, sure. in in Danny's house, the Undying Vision, she has several betrayals. Right? She has a betrayal for love, a yes. betrayal for gold, and a betrayal for is it love, gold? Blood. Blood, yeah. Treason, yeah, the treason. The treason, yeah. I'm sorry, that's that's my bad. Yeah, the treason for blood, the treason for gold, and the treason for... Which is fucked up again. For love. For love. So who do you yeah, think blood, is... Blood, gold, love. Do you think those actually correspond to characters in Danny's arc, or is that more meant metaphorical for for Daenerys? Or does it not matter that Danny is going to interpret multiple people in these different roles as she progresses in her story? Yeah, those are always the classic questions with with prophecies in in Song of Ice and Fire and elsewhere. And there's certainly, I think, some leeway with the House of the Undying, especially given how early it came in the series, that maybe 
Martin didn't, you know, maybe Martin has changed certain things along the way. Like yeah. you have the Bride of Fire section that would seem to refer to Danny's husbands, but there's nothing there referring to Hisdar because maybe Hisdar wasn't in the in the works as early as Clash of Kings. Yeah. So who, who knows how strictly you want to interpret these things? Or like you say, it could be self self filling to a certain extent. But if we're going to take them as literal people, Treason for Blood is generally agreed to be Miri Mazdur. Uh, because she, you know, Danny trusted her with Drogo and herself. Interesting. Uh, and Mary Mazder betrayed. I mean, that's a little iffy because I, I, I have no problem with Mary Mazder killing Drogo <laughs> because Drogo no. wiped out her people. So right. calling that a treason is a bit much. But for blood, seems like it was her because she just was doing it on behalf of her people. I disagree with that. But uh, go on. Okay. All right. Yeah, I remember. I, 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 th- I seem to recall that you do actually thinking back to your treasons list. Um, Treason for gold is a difficult one. You could possibly interpret Jorah or Brown Ben this way, but yeah. neither is entirely accurate. Mm. Um, you could also interpret Jorah as a betrayal for love in terms of wanting to go home. Right. Uh, it's a, certainly a possibility, but that one might st- might still be to come. Uh, I suspect Illyrio might be the betrayal for love because of his love for Sarah, his wife Sarah, and yes. potentially his son, Young Griff. Yes. Um uh, but I think there's multiple possibilities for each of those. Which uh, so let me bounce back to you, sir. What, what how do you uh, what do you think of the treasons, and how do you think Barristan would fit in? So I uh, I've um, I think that narratively, it'll basically Danny is going to be constantly saying or thinking to herself, "This is the betrayal for gold. This is the betrayal for love. This is the betrayal for blood," and finger different people. As she does throughout um, her arc. And, you know, you have that whole thing where Quaith tells her, be- beware of the preview of Seneschal. And uh, that is Danny is like, oh, does that mean um, freaking what's his name? The one of the Marinese guys, Resnack Mo Resnack. Or is that and then you have also Tyrion's ship is called the the stinky steward or the perfume Seneschal. And, and then you have Varas as well, which is also identified often as the perfume Seneschal because he is often wearing perfumes and his uh, as, as he's walking around Westeros. So uh, I, I do think narrative the narrative purpose of it is that it's going to be ambiguous and it won't be amb- and won't be objectively answered in A Song of Ice and Fire, even though Daenerys will take that multiple people fill the role. But uh, my take is that the is that the treason for um, the treason for blood is Illyrio um, with his son being Aegon uh, or young Griff. And that is why he is willing to betray Daenerys Targaryen in, in favor of, of young Griff. Uh, betrayal for gold, I would say... Uh, I also feel it's unsatisfying that Jorah and Brown Ben are there right now. I do think there's a potential of that, of something coming down the road of maybe one of her trusted people betrays her for uh, for a price or turns cloak on her. And then the betrayal or the treason for love, I think, is Sir Barristan Selmy. Because, as we're going to be talking about here, one of the things that Barristan loves more than his honor or rather one of the people that Barrison loves more than his honor is none other than Rhaegar Targaryen. Um, and he loves that guy two tears. And I believe that part of his rationale in, um, Turning Cloak will be because of his, his affection for Rhaegar, not romantic affection, the way that John Kynton feels about Rhaegar, but rather his knightly chivalric love that men on the battlefield can bear for each other type of type of love. <laughs> I agree. I had not considered uh, prior to this discussion that uh, Barristan's Rhaegar fanboyism 
uh, could be a significant swing element. But it's it's a compelling case. Barristan does bring him up several times, both to Daenerys and in his own thoughts. And uh, that that would make Egan Egan Six quite the temp- tempting uh, alternate candidate for Barristan. I, I mean, it really does come down to though whether he survives the Battle of Fire, because the only person in Slaver's Bay that knows anything about Aegon, as far as we know, oh, well, there's two people. Uh, one is uh, Makaro, who seems to have seen Aegon at some point in his flames. Uh, because he sees all those real and false and black and dark and white and or light dragons and true dragons and um, what is as he's telling Tyrion to dance with dragons. But um, so he hasn't actually seen Aegon, but he's seen him in the flames. But the other person is Tyrion Lannister, who Barristan has not encountered yet. So Barristan, if my theory is going to pan out that Barristan turns cloak on Daenerys Targaryen, and I'm not saying it's necessarily my theory. I'm 100% positive there have been multiple, multiple people who have. Uh, theorized about this prior to to me kind of doing a little bit of writing about it about a year ago. Um, Barrison has to survive the Battle of Fire. And that's, you know, uh, that is in doubt. I mean, he's in probably the most dangerous place he's ever been on a battlefield. He's up against a super overpowered army, but he so so far he they're they're kicking ass on the battlefield and taking names and kind of uh, killing their way through through the uh, the Yunkish and Giscari armies that are that are facing him. But I guess I guess we'll have to see. I mean, that's one of the things, right? So that sample chapter ends with Barristan. The battle's not over in any of the sample chapters that we have, but uh, but you have um, uh, you, there has to be more chapters coming in the Winds of Winter that detail the end of the battle for sure. Oh yeah, and that's going to be glorious to see, especially when uh, Victorian lands on shore and puts his firearm to work. That's going to be some glorious like immigrant song, Mad Max stuff. <laughs> Can't wait. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, Barristan definitely is riding to glory at the end of his second chapter there, but uh, I think, yeah, I think there are a, num- a number of factors circling that make me think uh, it's 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 going to be a, a fatal comeuppance afterwards. I mean, uh, there's Victorian to consider. I don't think Victorian's <laughs> going to kill Barristan, but uh, there is just the tone of, like, Barristan's joy at the Greyjoys showing up when we know that Victorian is an uncertain ally at best to Dany and more realistically, just another version of an enemy. Right. I mean, uh, given what his plans are for Dany, uh, given his general loathsomeness uh, and his, 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 the fact that he's a slaver himself, uh, you know, I think basically, I think as soon as Barristan realizes why Victorian is there, he's going to freak immediately out yes (laughs) i don't think that's going to be the source of his downfall but i think it will i think it could possibly set the tone for immediately after the joy of the victory everything's starting to go wrong uh barristan realizes that his his saviors are in fact uh just as much uh his ideological and situational enemies as the slavers they just defeated uh retreats to the city and finds that uh the, the shave paint has taken advantage of his trust and I think, uh, yeah, I think it kind of all, all, for me, all falls apart there. I mean, like you say, I think it's a question of uh, whether Barristan gets past the threshold or not. A couple things that make me think he doesn't. There's a repeated motif in A Dance with Dragons, both uh, with Barristan as a non-POV in Danny's chapters and then as a POV in his own right, where he is really spooked by the Brazen Beast's masks hmm. and does not like them at all. Uh, he says to Danny at uh, at one point in her ninth chapter, "A mask can hide many things, Your Grace. Your Grace is the man behind the owl mask, the same owl who guarded you yesterday and the day before. How can we know?" Hmm. Uh, and then uh, later on, he talks to Missandei when he's trying to get messages back and forth with the shave pate, 
Uh, he wore an owl mask when he spoke to you. By now he could be a jackal, a tiger, a sloth. Sir Barrison had hated the mask from the start, and never more than now. Honest men should never need to hide their faces. And the shave pate, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> uh, so uh, he, he, he later talks about uh, the shave pate wearing a cat mask and, and kind of spooking that way. There's the locust masks that the uh, beasts who go with Barristan to take care of his darware, which I always took as a the shape pate almost taunting Barristan to his face about who po- who really poisoned the locusts by literally sending more locusts with Barristan. Hmm. Um, so for, you know, obviously that's circumstantial evidence at best, but for me that motif speaks to uh, a kind of foreshadowing that uh, these men behind the masks and their untrustworthy identities and motives are going to be Barristan's downfall somehow, and that he's sensing it coming yeah. in the way that characters sometimes do, but that it's... Uh, that it's going to come to the fore in the winds of winter. Well, you also have, you know, not to argue your case for you, but you also have, uh, you know, in, in Barrison's first chapter in the winds of winter, it's made very explicit that most of the Danny's army, the unsullied, the cell swords, the, uh, the different companies of freedmen that have been training under the unsullied are all going out to battle, but who's manning the walls, but the, um, the shave pates and all of the, uh, the brazen beasts are going to man the walls. All, all of the, uh, the pro Danny forces go out and fight, which means that there's only going to be really one side within Marine that is going to be behind the walls. And that's going to be, uh, Skahaz's uh, own people while Barrison's people are out fighting the uh, the battle of fire uh, i i do wonder at something a bit tactically in terms of skahas and, and i don't think that is necessarily always congruent to think this way because you know george is not necessarily a military commander but he i would think he does he might think through something like this or at least address it killing barristan if skahas kills barristan what is going to be skahas's way to control Danny's people that are all inside Marine, even though a lot of the army is going to be out fighting in the Battle of Marine, how is he going to keep all of Danny's people from just pitching a fit and just going apeshit on all of the Shapates and all of the pro Skahas forces within Marine? That's an excellent question. I mean, maybe he, maybe it happens in private and he frames somebody, hmm. uh, or uh, maybe he, you know. F- blames it on some rogues or maybe he has some larger plan to deal with Danny's forces although the unsullied would seem to make that complicated yeah yeah I don't I, I, I don't know what his plan would be for that and I um, I'm assuming that the shape page just thinks Danny is dead and never coming back at this point because I also don't know what his plan would be for dealing with Danny right if he did that <laughs> and she returned yes maybe who knows maybe his plan maybe he's rolling the dice because he just sees this opportunity and maybe he's hoping maybe he's hoping that Barristan loses and that, that the Yunkish win and that uh, a much more feeble slaver force remains to lay siege and that the shave pay will be able to take them. Yeah. Uh, so may- maybe he's rolling the dice in that direction. But you're, I agree. That is something, if, if I'm right about this direction, that would be something that would have to be addressed because you're right. Uh, logistically speaking, uh, the shave pay doesn't have uh, the power to take on the Unsullied if they get pissed. Yeah. I mean, there's 10,000 or so Unsullied and I... Probably not as many brazen beasts, uh, for sure. The unsullied are just—I mean, they're they're best in defense more than offense, but they're still, you know, right. pound for pound, soldier for soldier, the beasts are no match for them. Right. Now, I uh, the other thing that kind of causes me to wonder about the Skaha's betrayal of Barrison. I do think that Skaha's will betray Barrison, but it won't be an explicit knife in the back or kill Barrison type thing. 
is the fact that the Sons of the Harpy are out in force at the end of A Dance of Dragons. Was it, was it that, um, that Barristan hears? Is it that 90-ish people were killed the night before after Hisar was taken prisoner by uh, – after he took Hisar prisoner? Um, I do think that the, the Sons of the Harpy do have a stake in killing Barristan Selmy. But at the same time, the Sons of the Harpy, as voiced by the Green Grace, they're also fearful that Marine is going to be sacked by the Yunkish and by all of the slavers. So they don't want Yunkai to win and to necessarily kill Barristan. They would need Barristan to first do something, which is to win the Battle of Fire first before they need to dispose of him because Barrison is that seemingly one of the two people that has been, that is responsible for his Dar's overthrow. Um, I'm sure they'll have to deal with Skahas in some other way, but the, the pit fighters, uh, I do think is, as I stated in my theory are, are likely culprits in my mind of who we were going to attempt to try to kill Barrison. A lot of them, as we find out in a dance with dragons, they spend a lot of their, uh, their arc accompanying his dar and the other, uh, great masters to Danny's court to try and convince Daenerys Targaryen to reopen the fighting pits. And one of the things that's made clear in Barrison's chapters is that Barrison has closed the fighting pits again. Not that really anyone wants to be in the fighting pit after the debacle at Daznak's pit. But with the fighting pits closed, there is a financial motivation for the pit fighters to try and take out Barrison, especially if Barrison is going to uphold Danny's prior um, uh, prohibition against uh, killing, uh, against pit fighting. Uh, but but I guess that's and a lot of them also seem to be controlled or at least paid for by the uh, by the great masters of Marine. Yeah, I think the pit fighters making an attempt on Barristan's life is entirely possible, especially as they keep yelling his Dar's name yeah. uh, when they're charging into battle. I think that's 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 definitely a, a strong possibility. I think I think that's a possibility separately, like regardless of the other question yeah, about what, sure. what happens when Barristan gets back to Marine. I think that's a strong possibility within the battle itself. Uh, the other the other argument I would make and is a uh, is certainly not direct evidence and. Uh, I don't, I don't generally favor using arguments from the show to talk about the books. <laughs> However, I'm going to do it. Yes, um, let's do it. Uh, Barristan's death is obviously a diverging point between the show and the book. He dies yep. considerably, no matter when he dies in the books, he died considerably earlier in the show. Uh, while Danny was still in Marine and struggling to rule it. Uh, he, speaking of Barristan's relationship to Rhaegar, he did, he died uh, right after dropping some Rhaegar backstory for both Danny and the audience. Uh, the the sons of the harpy uh, caught him in kind of a poorly staged ambush uh, in like a back alley, if I recall correctly. Grey Worm was there. <laughs> uh, Grey Worm was uh, severely wounded. Barristan was killed, uh, and that led to Danny uh, escalating her, her uh, fight with the slavers. Yes. Uh, so obviously that's not directly what's going to happen in the books. It already hasn't happened. Danny uh, took off from Daznax and Barristan is still alive and doing things. So that's not a literal translation. But uh, something I think the show uh, does frequently is do kind of uh, filtered or, to be unkind, bastardized versions of events <laughs> in the books. Uh, where a, a lot of elements are the same, but the context is very different in a way that I think maybe changes the, the tone of the event maybe more than they're realizing. Uh, the most prominent example being Stannis burning Shireen, which I think anyone who read A Clash of Kings or Storm of Swords even half well n knew that Stannis was going to burn Shireen. Right. The, the foreshadowing could not be stronger, especially in Storm. True. That Stannis is going to make that call. But 
the foreshadowing is also super strong in Storm that the context in which Stannis would make that call is the long night. Right. Not 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 the Civil War campaign against the Boltons. Right. Uh, which is more more than anything else is a sideshow and a place filler for while we get to the others. I mean, it's great stuff on its own, oh. but it's not oh, yeah. it's not the thrust. Um and we know that's not going to happen like that in the books because Shireen is not with Stannis on the march. Shireen and Melisandre both are still at the wall. They're not with Stannis on right. the march to Winterfell. So the sacrifice cannot happen in that context. So it, it, from what uh, the showrunners have said, Martin confirmed to some degree of specificity that, yes, Stannis does sacrifice Shireen in the books. Sure. And I think what probably happened is they took that event and then change the context to fit the story they wanted to tell in which John was the one leading the cause against the Boltons and there was just a lot of subplot bloat they didn't want to deal with so they're trying to get rid of Team Stannis earlier than that. Yes. So that we kind of ended up with that kind of uh, semi-accurate adaptation of the event in the books. Sure. And uh, for me, I think what we might have gotten with Barristan's death is another one of those where the information they know is Barristan dies against a pack of uh, in an ambush by a pack of masked killers like they might have had that outline for the scene or Martin might have described that image and then they they incorporated that into their story of Marine wherein uh, there was no shave bait or brazen beasts and the masks and the the, uh, killers wearing masks were the sons of the harpy Uh, and that uh, Barristan was a character they wanted to remove early to give Dany that kind of spur to turn darker in her Marine plot so they ended up keeping that image, but uh, not the context surrounding it. And again, that's nothing approaching direct evidence. That just struck me when I was watching uh, that season of the show as something that might be a distorted echo of something in the books. And I would agree to the extent that Barristan dying, as we said, as we both agree, is going to be an event that occurs. Uh, it's interesting you cite the Stannis example because they do move up Stannis's death considerably in the timeline and in the narrative. And they, they, they do it for Barrison too, regardless if he dies at the Battle of, of Fire or not. Now, the question I would have is, um, for that viewpoint, is that we get a version of the Battle of Fire in Season 6 of Game of Thrones? It's not amazing, don't get me wrong. Uh, I, I do prefer it, actually, over the Battle of Bastards. Maybe that's another episode we'll have someday down the road about going through the Battle of the Bastards is an episode of Game of Thrones. But um, the Battle of Fire, we do see a version of it where all of the slavers band together and they attack Marine. And uh, it kind of actually really took me by surprise when I watched it. I was like, what the fuck? They're doing the Battle of Fire? But okay, cool. Let's, let's do it. Um, the question I have, though, is if they knew they were going to do the Battle of Fire, why didn't they preserve Barristan Selmy for the battle of fire in the show, if that makes sense. And, and I do have an answer for that. And uh, my answer is of course going to be very congruent to my own viewpoint in theory uh, in that. I think that they killed Barrison off in season five, because I believe they made a decision somewhere around the time frame of season three, maybe a little bit after season three, that they weren't going to pursue the young Griff plot line. So if not having young Griff in the show, um, it, it leads them to say, you know, if we're not going to have young Griff in the show, we need to find a, a, a way to send Barristan Selmy off. And what better way than to have him fighting against the Sons of the Harpy in order to advance the fact that they are a menace and they are a dangerous threat to Daenerys Targaryen in season five of the show. Again, that is very much um, – what's, what's the word they, they use where uh, – bias theory? No, bias projection, bias – 
Both. We'll call it, call it both. both. It's a projection bias. Yeah, it's, it's a projection bias. No, sure. I think that's that's definitely a just as valid interpretation of what's going on there because they, they did uh, harvest Young Griff's storyline for spare parts with the giving the grayscale to Jorah Mormont yeah. and the, the whole trip through... Uh, turning the, the trip through the sorrows from the from a dance with dragons into their trip through Valyria, which is uh, one of my uh, actually favorite scenes in the show. Really, I, I love that whole sequence. Yeah, it's just really creepy, and they say that po- they, that weird little poem, and then the stone man attacks from like just out of view. It's I like it a lot, but um, not as good as the sorrows in the books, but it's still really good. <laughs> so I think, given that uh, uh, they were kind of taking that, I think understandable and correct kind of mercenary approach to Egan's storyline. Like, we don't have room for this. Let's kind of so- siphon what we can out of it. Yeah. Uh, I think it's entirely possible that they, they made that uh, decision in, in Barristan's case. You know, it's kind of, kind of sad. Um, Ian McKelleny, who plays Sir Barristan Selmy or who played Sir Barristan Selmy in the show, uh, was really, really, he's a, he was a reader of the books and he was really looking forward to getting to Barristan stuff in A Dance with Dragons where he overthrows his Darso Loric and he's fighting the, uh, uh, Kras in, in his star's throne room. Um, but then he got the call from David and, and Dan and, uh, where they told him, no, actually, you're going to die here. And he was he was actually really bummed. Like, if you read some of his stuff on Twitter, and, and I'd have to probably kind of find it, but he's not, he wasn't super happy about being killed off the way he was killed off. And But I, but I do think that if they weren't going to include Aegon in the story, that it was probably the right decision to kill Barristan off. And they did give him a fine send-off, too. I mean, him fighting against a horde of, of, of harpies was, uh, I, I found it cinematically enjoyable. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of some of the, some of the, some fervent book readers did not necessarily enjoy that scene, but I, I liked it. I thought it was a really good and thrilling scene, and I was really sad when Barristan died at the end of that scene. Oh yeah, I felt for him too, and I didn't know that about uh, about the actor. That's a uh, it's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. I'm mild, I'm mildly crushed. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. So in terms, uh, that that's a lot of kind of uh, plot oriented stuff about about Barristan. But there is there is some in, kind of more interiorized uh, right. Things to consider about where Barristan is going and what his endgame is going to mean. Sure. Uh, because as we've touched on in a couple ways, uh, Barristan thinks a lot about and is de- determined by his relationship to the kings he served. And, uh, of course, probably first on that list in terms of the space occupies in his brain is the Mad King, Aerys Targaryen II. Yeah. And certainly Barristan's relationship to him is a pivotal part of his character and may play a big role going forward. Yeah, it's it's one of those things about the books that I really enjoy, especially in, in A Dance with Dragons, is Barristan's getting Barristan's point of view of Aerys II. And when we get his, his point of view at the end of the book, we find that he's holding a lot of guilt over what he saw in service to Aerys Targaryen. He thinks there's two great quotes that he thinks the first uh, both actually from the Queen's Guard, his first chapter, and it's, quote, Sir Barristan wondered if he had not done that duty too well. He had sworn his vows before the eyes of God and men. He could not in honor go against them. But but the keeping of those vows had grown hard in the last years of King of King Aris's reign. He had seen things that had pained him to recall, and more than once he wondered how much of the blood was on his own hands. And then the second quote is also from the Queen's Guard again, and that is, quote, in that same cloak, he had stood beside the Iron Throne as madness consumed Jaehaerys' son, Aerys, stood and saw and heard, and yet did nothing. So, Barrison has this kind of um, 
this thing where he, he thinks more generally about what he saw and he's like, oh, there's things that paint him too much to recall. So he doesn't think specifically about air is burning Lord Rickard Stark, for instance, but he was almost certainly there and a witness to the event. Um, he is consumed by his own guilt in the actions, but he's seen how Ares's psychology has took a real dangerous turn for the worst, especially after the defiance of Duskendale, where he was held prisoner for a year in Lord Darkland's dungeons. Uh, and, and I do think one of the things that's going to be interesting, and this is if, again, Barristan survives the Battle of Fire, what happens when he sees Daenerys Targaryen? So assuming he survives the Battle of Fire, Daenerys Targaryen comes comes back to Marine. What is Barristan going to see in Danny? And that kind of takes me to something else, which is that we get a bit of Danny's mentality and and. Emmett, you talked about it as, as as a darker Daenerys, and you have that line, dragons plant no trees, and Daenerys remembers her words, fire and blood, and that her war is in Westeros. Some of those things might appeal to Danny, or rather appeal to Barristan, but, uh, but that there is going to be perhaps some troubling aspects to what that is going to mean, what Danny bringing fire and blood to her enemies in Essos and then along the way to Westeros, what that's going to mean to, to Barristan and that he may see a bit of Ares in Ares's daughter, Daenerys Targaryen. I think that's definitely compelling. And I agree that Danny is moving in that direction. Uh, I don't know if, how, how, if her end game is doomed to be that way, but I, I think she's going to certainly ride the line through winds of winter. And again, I think it's a situation where we don't disagree on the kind of themes and mood of what's being, uh, what's under discussion, yeah. but more the, more the, uh, the fallout of it. You have that, uh, simultaneously frustrating and poignant moment at the end of Danny's A Storm of Swords arc, where Barristan has been revealed as himself, not as Arston Whitebeard any longer. <laughs> And his whole backstory is out, and uh, he goes to Danny and asks her, I thought you might have some questions for me. You know, I, I served your father and I kept his secrets, but he's dead now. I serve you, his secrets are yours. And she starts to ask him about what her dad was really like, and then he he begins to tell her about how it went after the Defiant of Duskendale, and she cuts him off with, do I want to hear this now? And he says, perhaps, perhaps not. not. Yeah. Part of you goes, oh, no, so close. <laughs> Why? But uh, especially given that it doesn't come up again in Dance with Dragons, part of me wonders whether that's deliberate on Martin's part, that part of Danny's turn to darkness is that the one person who could have warned her hmm. doesn't get a chance to. That if, if Barristan dies before Danny sees him again, she won't have anyone to pull her back from the brink and she'll be left alone with Tyrion. Because as, as you said, one thing we do agree with is that uh, Tyrion as we already see in his released Winds of Winters chapter, is is kind of on the meteoric rise back to the top of his political yeah. situation, his political environment. Absolutely. And uh, is, is is poised to be the devil on Danny's shoulder throughout the Winds of Winter, or at least when they meet in the Winds of Winter. Martin has uh, hinted that it's going to be, uh, there's going to be a fair amount of the book is going to go by before they actually meet, which makes sense because a lot of stuff has to be dealt with in Marine. Danny has to spend time with the Dothraki, etc. But uh, that's Tyrion's role. And apparently it feels like Barristan doesn't have a role in that process and needs to not be there for that to work properly, which could go either way. It could mean he dies before Danny gets back or he's horrified and leaves. Yeah. That, you know, e e either way, Barristan is out of Danny's circle. Um, but, I, but I do think that the way Martin framed that in Storm of Swords where Bar Danny almost hears the truth but decides not to is very telling about what her relationship to her dad is going to be like in Winds of Winter where she's going to unconsciously follow his path because no one warned her in the same way that 
she has this wild, uncontrollable relationship to and through her dragons because she was never trained to use them. No, I think those are, those are great points. And I, and I do think that having Danny unconsciously becoming more like Eris the second is a great motif that Martin might opt for come, come the Winds of Winter. Uh, I, I would think it, for me personally, I, I would think it'd be really interesting if it is a conscious thing of Barrison being like, you know, I, I knew someone else who said that his champion was fire. You know, if Danny is like, my words are fire and blood, uh, and we will use fire to 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 end the the machinations of these slavers and take out the Valentines and install the tattered prince as Prince of Pentos. And, and I, I, if my theory pans out, I don't know when exactly Barrison would would turn against Daenerys. But I, I do kind of wonder whether you, you might want to have Tyrion as the devil. And and Barrison as the angel, you might want to have something like a Melisandre and Davos approach to to to, uh, to Stannis, right? To have two characters that are holding opposing viewpoints that make it clear what is the right and the wrong choice, or I guess the one that is what is the most morally flexible choice, and what is the one that is the more ethical, more morally correct choice. And I do think that for Barrison, despite all his faults, as we talked about, might provide that perspective to Danny and would be able to talk historically about about Danny's father and Ares and what Ares would have done in the situation seems kind of similar to what you're doing right now, Danny. Like, you may not want to burn your burn the people in, in Pentos. They really haven't done anything against you necessarily. Yes, Illyrio did, but maybe not the people in Pentos. Maybe, and did you not know that your father killed all the people in in Duskendale of all the Darklands down to the children and killed all the Hollards except for the one that I saved sort of motif. But I totally see where you're coming from in that, that, that Danny becoming unconsciously or subconsciously like Aerys Targaryen is a great kind of turn and it's great for the reader too because you don't want to make it as explicit, right? You don't want the reader to be like, okay, so here we go again. Tyrion's going to say, Danny, you need to do this morally inflexible, this morally flexible action that will you know, get you closer to Westeros, but will involve you killing more innocent people and Barrison taking the opposite approach. Maybe, maybe Martin will want that to be more reader interpretation. That is something that he likes to do is to leave things to readers to interpret in what they're reading in the text. I do like the idea of Barrison having the slow dawning horror that Danny's saying the same things Eris is. It reminds me of the the Lord of the Rings moment where Bilbo calls the ring his precious and yes. Gandalf freaks out. Uh, yes, like it's been called that before, but not by you. Like that would that would be a, that kind of moment, which that would that would definitely be really compelling. Um, one thing to consider here, and this is kind of a sidebar, is that there's also all this Mad Queen imagery surrounding Cersei. Yes, and uh, obviously the show has gone all but explicitly in that direction, uh, and that's that's an interesting dynamic. I wonder if that's meant to be a parallel between the two, or if we're meant to like wonder which one is really going to fulfill that role. I've uh, speculated before, as have several people, that you might have a situation where Cersei almost sets off the wildfire in the books, and then Jamie stops her, so you think the damage is gone, and then Danny shows up and sets it off, and there's right. a reversal, you know, a comeuppance of which one is actually the Mad Queen in that situation. But you do have things like, obviously, Cersei staring at the wildfire with awe, or uh, uh, Jamie comparing her to Eris in his head, or even, even stuff like... Um, the the mirish wife of the Lord of Duskendale, yes, who uh, whispered in his ear that, as people have pointed out, that seems like a very direct parallel to Tyena Merryweather. 
and kind of her uh, having her, her with her Westerosi husband and their place in Cersei's stories. I actually so never heard that, but that's Cersei, great. Cersei might kind of, and uh, she's abandoned Cersei now. Yeah. So Cersei might take out a terrible vengeance on her in that same way. Uh, not, uh, that's not exactly pursuant to uh, to the conversation about Barristan, but I just I think it's interesting uh, when you, when we talk about Dany as Mad Queen that there's a, a lot of a lot of interesting images kind of going back and forth between Dany and Cersei over which one will fill this role. But yeah, Barristan as the Davos to Tyrion's Melisandre and Dany Stannis, I think could work could potentially work very well. What makes me hesitant is that they both be POVs. Yeah. Which is, that makes that makes three POVs in one storyline. Sure. And we're, we already have 20 POVs in the book, <laughs> and Martin said he's going to be killing off multiple ones. Uh, it strikes, and, and that's, that's, that's kind of unfair because that's such a general statement and that, that there's nothing to suggest which of those POVs will be which, and he could easily keep Barristan around and kill someone I'd never expect him to kill. <laughs> but it, it, that's what does lead me to think, like, for example, that Damp Hair is probably going to die yeah. early in wins, not only because he's in a horrible situation in the Forsaken, but also because Sam is right there to be the POV sure. in that particular theater. Uh, or that, uh, you know, probably both Ariane and John Con are doomed given where the plot is headed. But... Uh, even even if it, even if the plot wasn't heading in that direction, you could probably sense that one of them is going down just because they're both going to be in the same place. Yep. Uh, all else being equal, I lean towards the areas where there's multiple POVs having more POVs killed off and wins. Uh, but uh, again, though, I agree that the that the dynamic between Tyrion, uh, Danny, and Barristan could work uh, really well. Yeah, I mean it's. Well, I guess we'll have to see what Wood Martin does. Uh, I, I do think that there's often um, – I, I do tend to agree that where there are more multiple point of view characters kind of coalescing around one area that will find those – one or two of those point of view characters dying off. I think um, beyond the examples you cited, Victarion dying at the Battle of Fire seems likely Oh yeah, at, at the least. Um, Victarion and Barristan dying would seem – would be kind of devastating because I, I really enjoy both their point of views even though I – you know, again, disagree with them morally. Victorian a whole lot more than Barristan, but that's a separate conversation. I'm sure we can get into down the road. Um, but uh, I, I also have a a feeling too that what Martin is talking about about point of views dying is that there might be characters like Ario Hota who might end up dying, and there's no other point of view characters. Uh, other point of view characters around in Dorne at this point in time. I mean, there may be down the road. We'll have to see. Uh, but Ariane has left the uh, has left Sunspear and is on her way up to Griffin's Roost and has actually reached Griffin's Roost and is on her way actually to Storm's End. Now that I'm remembering the Ariane two chapter, um, I also kind of don't feel like that Theon or Asha are going to necessarily die in the Battle of Ice. At least initially, I'm sure there might be a fitting end for both of them at some point down the road. But I, I don't see them both kind of buying it, and at least in, in in the lake battle, maybe they buy it trying to take Winterfell. One of them, one of the other, one or both of them do die. But I guess we'll have to see uh, on that one. Um, but I did want to kind of talk a little. You mentioned about the uh, the Targaryen taint, and that is a great uh, conversation topic, and tying it with uh, the madness side of it. Um, one of the the things that's that's brought up is that Barristan, you know, tells Danny at the end of A Storm of Swords that he doesn't see the taint of Eris or her brother Viserys in that uh, in that chapter that he's been observing her and he sees that she's actually pretty good, all things considered. At the same time, though, 
what is Barristan going to see? And again, provided he survives the Battle of Fire, again, that feels that feels like that's such like the the Crucible, right? I mean, it's uh, it almost seems like if Barristan survives the Battle of Fire, then we can have this, this discussion. But at the same time, I'll bring it up anyways. So, if Barristan survives the Battle of Fire. Uh, is he going to start perceiving Danny as the Mad Queen? Because is he going to start seeing like, hey, maybe I was wrong. Maybe she does have the taint in her. Especially when you have Danny controlling a massive Dothraki horde, burning her enemies with dragons, talking with a starry quaith, and ghostly apparitions of her past, as we see in her final chapter in A Dance with Dragons, where she speaks with ghost Jorah Mormont and ghost Viserys all on the Dothraki Sea. I don't know. I'll toss it over to you. I've, I definitely have my, my feelings on it. I don't think that Danny is going to be objectively mad necessarily. I think that role is much more suited for Cersei Lannister. At the same time, I could see all of her enemies thinking of her as the Mad Queen and just her, just the daughter of, of Aerys Targaryen, the Mad King. Um, but yeah, I'll toss it over to you at that point. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And this is where the connection to Cersei, I think, might be relevant is that you know, Danny, as we're talking about taking shape in the Winds of Winter, certainly has elements that would uh, freak out a guy like Barristan or a guy like Varys, for example, who hates magic. Yes. Uh, or someone like Maester Lewin, where she's like fulfilling multiple prophecies and hanging out with wizards and burning people from Dragonback. But, um, you know, that's not quite mad in the same way that Eris was mad. True. Eris, like, didn't didn't want to move. Like, Eris, like, Eris was a, a Howard Hughes plus sadism kind of crazy. Yes. Uh, not the actively go out and conquer the kingdom kind of crazy. Which it doesn't necessarily mean that Barristan would be more on board with Danny's <laughs> kind. But uh, it's striking, striking when we're talking about, like, Danny's relationship with Quaith that Barristan does uh, worship, here worship Rhaegar. And Rhaegar himself was a, a, a dude who was into prophecy. True. It's not clear how much True. Barristan really n- knows about that or how much credence he gives it in terms of... Uh, uh, Barristan's, although he was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Barristan was the one who told Danny about the story about Rhaegar saying, I must see, it seems I must be a warrior, right? And he also, Barristan also. Was, was that Barristan? Yeah, those, yeah, and he also said something about that um, there was always a sense of doom around Barristan as well. Right, about, yeah, around Summerhall and stuff. So, I mean, obviously that's not the same as being the stallion who mounts the world and leading a Dothraki horde to Westeros. But there, for me, there there is enough to suggest there that Barristan doesn't have. Uh, he's not necessarily averse to Danny as like a messianic prophetic figure. Hmm. Uh, he, he, I think he would object to some of her actions, but I don't think her overall persona is is would freak him out in the same way it would freak out Varys. And I don't. And I agree. It's not not as much a direct parallel to Eris as Cersei is. Yeah, and, and you know, the other thing too is that. Barristan has already seen Danny in a magic role as a dragon rider and as controlling Excellent three point. dragons. So I, it could be that that's overstating the case for Barristan may have, might have maybe going, I don't know about all this magic stuff here, because at the same time, Barristan should consciously be thinking she did birth three dragons. She is riding a dragon. Why wouldn't she have prophetic dreams and speak with people through glass candles or across time and space and, and speak to the dead. Uh, but again, that's, that's also some of these things might change in, in, in Barrison's mind as well. Uh, but, but I guess we'll have to see. Um, I, I will just, uh, so I do have one major point to bring up, but I did want to talk about something that was more fun. That is much more ambiguous. And that is a dream that Tyrion has. 
in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, I don't know if it's prophetic or not, but I think it's interesting all the same. Uh, so in the context of this is that uh, Tyrion has is drunk and he is drunk dreaming uh, as he's in the carriage with Illyria Mopatis on his way to the Rhoyne to meet up with John Connington and Aegon and Duck and Halden and all the great company that's uh, heading on their way down to Volantis. So the, uh, the quote is, and again, Tyrion is, is dreaming here. He says, quote, that night Tyrion Lannister dreamed of a battle that turned the hills of Westeros as red as blood. He was in the midst of it, dealing death with an axe as big as he was, fighting side by side with Barristan the Bold and Bittersteel as dragons wheeled across the sky above them. Unquote. Um, so this, uh, this dream is interesting because Tyrion sees Barristan Selmy fighting alongside of Bittersteel. And Tyrion is thinking about this because he just had a conversation with Illyrio in which he's asking, he's questioning Illyrio about why the Golden Company, which had fought so long to unseat the Red Dragon, was now backing the Red Dragon in Daenerys Targaryen. He's very suspicious of Illyrio's motivations and he thinks that he's a liar and things like that. At the same time, I do think it's interesting that you have Barristan and Bittersteel fighting side by side, and it's possible that Bittersteel here is symbolizing the Golden Company, and as dragons wheeled across the sky above them, feels almost second battle of fire, or rather not second battle of fire, second field of fiery uh, to me. But I have to also have to, have to admit there are some weaknesses on my own end, and that's uh, it's unlikely that Tyrion would be fighting alongside the Golden Company, uh, given that Danny versus Aegon is happening, and that Danny and Tyrion are going to intersect in the Winds of Winter. However, I will note this: that is an interesting meta note. I actually did a little bit of research about this chapter. This chapter was read in. Uh, I think it was like 2003, but it was recorded in 2005 on Westeros.org and their pre Dance with Dragons as a uh, uh, index, which chronicles and indexes all of the sample chapters. Um, there are several summaries of this of the Tyrion 2 chapter. And it's interesting that the dream was not in the original reading that George R. R. Martin gave of Tyrion 2 back in 2003 or 2005. So what I wonder is whether there was a possibility that George R. R. Martin edited this into the Tyrion chapter after he added Barristan as a point of view character. And just another quick meta note, Barristan wasn't added as a point of view character until like a year and a half before George R. before Dance with Dragons was published. He was never intended to be a point of view character until George R. R. Martin decided that he needed Barristan as a point of view character in order to break the Marinese knot, which plagued his writing in A Dance with Dragons for close to six years. Yeah, and that is, I'm glad you brought that up because that is that was always part of my reluctance to think that Barristan's going to have a, a large role to play in Winds and Dream and have a big internal struggle because he wasn't originally supposed to be a POV, be a POV character and feels kind of like a stopgap to make the Mirrenies not work. Uh, but again, you can draw two conclusions from that. One is that Again, he's just there to fill a role and will be ushered off stage in the way he would be if he was never a POV character. Yeah. Or it could mean that Martin has substantially rewritten Barristan's role as a result of that and uh, will be going forward. And there's the evidence for that, as you cited, is that he has he changed the chapter uh, and included that dream in, in Tyrion 2, A Dance with Dragons, uh, which might have been him deciding, okay, Barristan is going to have this larger role. I'm going to start setting it up here. Uh, as far as the dream itself goes, it's, uh, again, a classic conundrum about kind of <laughs> dreams and prophecies in A Song of Ice and Fire about whether they're uh, literal or uh, wish fulfillment in some way, mm -hmm. about whether whether they are a glimpse at the narrative 
source code and the reality of what's going to happen or whether they're supposed to be emblematic of a character's inner life. Yeah. So same with that dream in Tyrion. Is that a uh, kind of a literal glimpse of where he's going to be going coming back to Westeros? Or is that just his brain going, taking what it's heard from Illyrio and making up a wish fulfillment for itself, given how low Tyrion is at that at that point in the story? Yeah. Is that just him projecting what he'd, he'd like his endgame to be, fighting alongside badasses with dragons? And for me, the fact that Bittersteel's there, given that he's how long he's been dead, <laughs> like of course it could just easily symbolize the Golden Company. But that that his presence and the fact that Barristan is referred to as Barristan the Bold and Tyrion has a big axe that makes it seem slightly, ironically enough, fantasy esque <laughs> to me, where it's like this is just what Tyrion uh, wants to happen and is kind of imagining he will happen, like the way. Uh, you know the kind of the way Bran has wistful fantasies about walking again, yeah. Uh, ver- as 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 opposed to a, as opposed to a more prophetic one. But again, it could really be either one. Like you don't something we've seen in Song of Ice and Fires. You don't necessarily have to be a magically inclined or prophetic yourself to have uh, glimpses of the future. Theon had that really weird dream in Clash of Kings, where like he yeah. saw Rob bleeding, Rob and Grey Wind having been killed at the Red Wedding, and like Lyanna in her her. Uh, the dress she died in, even though Theon really shouldn't know those details at all. Yes. So uh, it's so it's entirely possible that that it is a glimpse of a of a future to come for Tyrion, especially as you said, since Martin felt the need to insert it later. That is, uh, that is usually a giveaway in his process once he he goes back and edits or removes something like that. That came up um, around whether he was going to give away there was a sword for Egan oh, right. in, in Tyrion yes. Three Dance with Dragons. There was originally Illyrio muttering something to Egan's handlers about a sword. Which people have interpreted to mean the the sword Blackfire. Yes. Uh, some Martin might have removed that to not give that away, or for some other reason. So he's clearly, the, you know, this uh, Tyrion's chapters and dance, especially regarding Team Megan, is clearly something he's been tinkering with. So it, this, I think, it, it, it might be that his tinkering with that and his tinkering with Barristan uh, turned into one big tinker, so to speak. Uh, that's good. One big tinker. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to use that. We should, that's what we should have called this episode: the one big tinker. It's. It sounds vaguely dirty in a childish <laughs> way, Jeff. I think we might upset our audience. We, we, we very well might. We, we very well might. Um, one of the things that uh, I've I thought about is the possibility that George R. R. Martin might be thinking of Barrison as that major twist character in The Winds of Winter. There is that interview that Martin gave in 2015 where he says that, oh, my plan is to finish The Winds of Winter before season six of Game of Thrones. Whoops. <laughs> Didn't work out so well for Martin. But he also says in that that interview with uh, James Hibbert of Entertainment Weekly that he is now going to be working on a twist for uh, The Winds of Winter that will be involving a character who is dead in the show but alive in the books, which kind of fits Barrison Selmy pretty well, and will involve multiple characters as well. So one of the things I've thought about is that the twist may involve uh, a Barrison Selmy here. Now – there is a great counter argument to that, and I will say, say it up front. And that is uh, brought forward by a uh, one a great Reddit user by the name of Jones Tony Seventy, uh, in which he had said, "Well, if that if that seems seemingly in a Dance with Dragons, Martin, if Martin is deciding to include Barrison as a uh, as a as a character who betrayed in there, as he kind of sets it up, he at least includes a fair amount of evidence in a Dance with Dragons, which was published in two thousand eleven. So it may not be." a Barristan twist necessarily, but I did, and maybe somewhat still do like the idea of Barristan 
betraying Danny as, as that twist that Martin has in mind come come the winds of winter. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, there, there aren't that many characters that fit that definition of uh, dead on the show but alive in the books. Um, they're just far more that just didn't show up at all. Oh, do you know off the top of your head when when he when he said that who was still who was dead on the show at that point? Because I'm trying to think about so was, who else would qualify. It was April 2015 is when he said it, and okay. so before season five, just when season five was airing. Okay, uh, and okay, it, it, it kind of makes it ambiguous because like, does that mean? just characters who were killed before season five of Game of Thrones or is Martin have in mind? Cause obviously Martin is probably doing read-throughs of scripts and oh, sure. knows the endpoints that David and Dan ben- David Benioff and Dan Weiss have in mind for a season. So is he thinking about a character like Stannis or a character like Barrist and Selmy who both die in season five of Game of Thrones? Or is he only thinking of characters from season four, a character like Jojen Reed or who I guess I, I mean, that's another discussion we have altogether, whether Jojen Reed is actually dead by the end of A Dance of Dragons. But he's at least not confirmed 100 percent dead in, at, by the end of A Dance of Dragons, even though I think that he is. Um or other characters like the the Dothraki, uh, Mago, who's uh, killed in season one, and that is a character that Martin has cited before, as he will be playing a role come the Winds of Winter because he's one of the blood riders to uh, Kyle Jaco, and um, so yeah, it's 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 kind of ambiguous, but it's a great conversation, of course, to have a, about talking about what the twist character will be. I have thought that Barrison might be that character that he has in mind, but I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, Mago is certainly a possibility, depending on how prominent a role Martin has in mind for him. Uh, Barristan strikes me as a strong possibility because I'm not sure what the twist would be for, like, Stannis or Jojen. Yeah. Jojen's, Jojen especially, no matter when he dies, seems like his role is pretty clear. Get Bran to the cave and then die in a sad way. Right. Like that's He's the transitional mentor. That's his job. Uh, Stannis... Again, Martin, I think, has had the big twist in mind there. Ari Shireen coming since the very beginning of yes. the conception of Stannis' character. Uh, so I doubt there are many twists to be had left. So I think Barristan, I think Barristan, he has more wiggle room there in part, as we said, because he's already shown a, a willingness and indeed inclination to tinker with Barristan's character and, and uh, shift his role in the story around as fits the needs of the story. So that, that that could definitely point in that direction. I mean, it could also be like Mance Raider, who was killed in like episode two of season five or episode one. I can't remember which one at this point. Yeah, I had forgotten that. That's true. And yeah, Mance is a, a super wild card. A big mystery. Exactly. Mance, Mance is one of those characters I could see going in any number of directions. Like I could see him dying right away in wins. I could see him striving the whole series and being a big deal at the end. Yes. Lots of possibilities there. Yeah. So we'll, we'll leave that that question open for, for you all to debate. Uh, feel free to debate in the comments section of this post about who you think the twist character is and what the twist might actually be. Um, but yeah. So I will just make one final major point, And that is a um, a, a line that, that that's that kind of comes up in Tyrion's midpoint chapter in his Dance with Dragons arc and probably one of my Probably my actually my all time favorite Tyrion chapter, also one of the most horrifying Tyrion chapters. That is a Dance of Dragons Tyrion six, in which Tyrion is having this conversation with uh, young Griff, and he at this point has revealed that he knows that he's Aegon the sixth to him, 
or the purported Aegon the Sixth, rather. And uh, he says to him, and he's he's talking with Young Griff about what Daenerys Targaryen is going, how Dan- Danny will react to him when he shows up in Marine, because at this point the Golden Company is still on schedule to go to Marine and try and link up with Daenerys and present Aegon as a consort for for Daenerys. So, that context in mind, the quote is quote. Now, how do you suppose this queen will react when you turn up with your begging bowl in hand and say? Good morrow to you, Auntie. I am your nephew Aegon, returned from the dead. I've been hiding on a pole boat all my life, but now I've washed the blue dye from my hair, and I'd like a dragon, please. And oh, did I mention my claim to the Iron Throne is stronger than your own? Unquote. So, one of the interesting things about Barristan's journey in the narrative so far is that he's kind of in search of the one true king or the one true queen, as it turns out. What happens if he finds out that Aegon the Sixth is alive or someone who is perceived as Aegon the Sixth is alive? And did we mention that people like John Connington, Doran Martell, Randall Tarley all are backing this guy and saying that, yes, he is Aegon the Sixth. It is... Uh, and here's the, the phrase I forgot. It's confirmation bias, uh, for sure. Um, for Barrison to be like, oh, well, if all of these guys say that this guy is Aegon the Sixth, then it's Aegon the Sixth. And if he's Aegon the Sixth, he has a stronger claim to the Iron Throne. And on top of that, Aegon in the Winds of Winter, as I believe both Emmett and I would agree with, will be kind of cleaning house, kicking the Lannisters out of power, uh, displacing Mace Tyrell in some fashion, you know, and receiving the support of very popular factions like the Sparrows and the High Sparrow and uh, the Faith Militant and, um, and yeah, and Dorne and the Reach, the Chivalry of the Reach, and he'll have the Golden Company with them. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I do wonder whether that's going to be a defining factor in Barristan's arc that, hey, you know, Danny is maybe going in the wrong direction. I feel guilty about watching Eris and standing by and doing nothing. And by the way, there is someone else who is a claimant to the Iron Throne who is seeming to do good and does not is not burning his enemies. Though I do kind of fear for like people like Marcella and Tommen, what, whether that information will reach Barrison, whether that will have an impact on him. But yeah, I, I, I've been talking too long, so I'll, t- I'll, I'll toss it on over to you. Hardly, sir. Uh, yeah, I think that could work well as Barristan's like excuse to leave Danny if Danny starts freaking him out and acting like Eris. I think Egan could o- operate as like a failsafe, yeah, or like a get out of jail free card for Barristan. Uh, uh, but I think if so, I think he'd be using Egan's heritage as or Egan's stronger claim as a fig leaf for what he's really worried about with Danny. Uh, it's yeah, it would require Barristan being convinced that Egan's the real deal, which certainly would help if you have a bunch of people vouching for him, like uh, you know, kind of um, gruff military people like John Con and Randall Tarley, people Barristan would respect. Uh, I think the Fly in the ointment there might be Varus, <laughs> who Barristan hates, and is 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 uh, obviously Egan's primary benefactor. And again, who knows? Like you said about the news about Tom and Marcella, who knows how open Varus is ever going to be about that? Yes, which is something I think of an interesting question: is how much of a coming art party Varus really has? It seems like at the end of a Dance with Dragons in the epilogue that this is Varus taking center stage, finally coming out to kill Pycelle and Kevin, but he's probably going to be in the walls of the Red Keep for a while yet. Who knows how openly he's ever going to rule at his perfect prince's side. 
Uh, I think his presence would be a warning sign for Barristan that uh, everything's not on the level. You have that line from Stannis that Barristan said that the rot in Eris's realm began with Varys. Yes. Uh, so I think that might make Barristan uneasy about running over to Egan. I think stuff like the deaths of Tommen and Marcella, again, if he finds out about it, if he, whatever the context of that turns out to be, would also be kind of uh, uh, a warning sign for him. I think I think I think it could be pulled off well. I also wonder if it might be uh, again we run into kind of like the redundancy trouble where a lot of I think the pathos there might already be covered by John Connington, yeah. who's also this Robert's yeah, Rebellion sure. veteran trying to do right by Rhaegar and you know kind of serving that role. But then again, John Con has grayscale. Who knows how long he's actually going to last in the narrative? Right. Uh, so Barristan could easily re- uh, fulfill that role afterwards. I mean, I do think that John Con has to survive long enough to realize that he's done all of these shitty, awful, horrible things to get his comeuppance and realize that he's been backing a guy who is not actually Rhaegar's son. I do think yes. that feels very Martin-esque uh, to me. Yes, I agree. So I, I do think that is a great counter-argument to the idea that Barristan can then take the John Con role as the military commander who can command Aegon's armies on 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 in his king's behalf. Although again, Aegon in the Winds of Winter is saying that I will lead the attack on on Storm's End, which is something that I'm very interested in seeing. Um, but that's but yeah, I, I do think that that's a great counter argument to to that idea. So yeah, that's a uh, that is our takes, our opposing takes on the fate of Sir Barristan Selmy. I will say personally that I feel like I have learned things from our discussion today. Lots of interesting takes. I'm actually gonna. I'm actually really excited to edit this one because I'm gonna go back and kind of consider some of the. I'll be able to consider some of the things that you say a little bit more deeply. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll uh, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll come back to talking about this someday down the road and see if we've had any any change of hearts on our original positions. Although I would say right now that I still feel that I am still 100% correct. Of course. But that's okay. You know, two two bros, two amen bros can disagree with each other, still be friends and still mm-hmm. and have a good podcast with each other. And, uh, and yeah, hopefully bring something that uh, you all can enjoy and consider. Absolutely. We, we, we disagree with lots of love, and I think we were endlessly praising each other throughout the <laughs> world. So no, no different So no different from our usual repartee. <sighs> but yeah, no, I still, I'm still on definitely my side of the argument there. But no, you gave me a lot to consider, especially with the argument about uh, his Rhaegar leanings, which is something I really like. So um, more, more leaning more in that direction, but, but still on my side of the line. But I think, again, like I said earlier, I think this is an area where there's a, a definitely strong arguments to make on both sides. I, I really do hope that we won't be debating this in a few years. I hope that we'll have the wins a winner here and, and relatively soon so that we can be like, oh, OK, well, we can see where we went, we went wrong. I mean, I will say for the people who are listening to this podcast that Emmett so far is one to zero against me on theories that have been, that have panned out because I had this wonderful, amazing, awesome theory that Euron Greyjoy was following Victorian to Marine and would pop out of, uh, out of the ship and would, you know, take Victorian and use his king's blood to, do whatever with the dragon horn and take a dragon uh, captive and then sail back to Westeros with Daenerys as his bride. And guess who was wrong? It was me. Well, you got to catch up somehow, Jeff. We got to, you got to tie that score. I guess. Yeah. We got to go one to one. And then, uh, and, and then I guess, you know, if you remember back to our, uh, our episode on John one, we do have to hopefully at some point have some resolution, whether Tyrion is a Targaryen or whether he's, not a Targaryen or a Targaryen bastard, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. But uh, 
but yeah, that's that's another one that I guess is going to be outstanding as well. I don't think that one will, be, will necessarily be resolved in the wins of winter, though. True. Well, may we find out who's wrong soon, Jeff? May we? May we? May we learn canonically who was incorrect? It will. It will. It will be my absolute delight to be proven one hundred percent wrong if we. If if it's done so in the form of the winds of winter. I I reciprocate that. And I think that is a Excellent. great place to end on. So thank you to everyone, um, not just for listening, but for, for supporting us. You know, it's I, I feel like I say this a lot, but I, I really am honored and touched by everyone's support for us. And not just in not just financially, although that's nice, um, but like the words of encouragement, the arguments that we see in, in the Twitter comments. I mean, I'm looking at an argument right now on our Twitter page about the pronunciation of Liana or Liana Stark that has apparently been going on for 48 hours now. But I appreciate the, the amount of um, excitement and uh, controversy, not controversy, the excitement that we can exp- inspire and uh the, the conversation that we can inspire with you guys. And it's, it's something that's it's a lot of fun for me to, to kind of bear witness to. I agree. I love you people. Y'all are the best. Yeah, man. Well, uh, briefly, you can find us, as always, on our social media. That is at NotACastASOF on Twitter. Email us at NotACastASOF at gmail.com. You can find me at Brenda B. Fish on Twitter, Brenda B. Fish on Reddit. And my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter and at poorquentin.tumblr.com. Yeah. And since you guys already support our Patreon, we don't have to say anything about it about our Patreon. So, again, thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks for being our supporters. And we look forward to bringing you our next Patreon-only episode, as well as our regular chapter-by-chapter podcast. Stay tuned for more details. Yes, indeed. Take care, everybody. Nauticast podcast is written and recorded by Port Quentin and Brendan Beefish. The music we heard is by Intermissions Music. Uh, the, song, the track is called Summer Child. And the closing song is by our old favorite, Cat Nights Begin. And that song is called Alaska Goodbye. Thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you all in one month on Patreon and next week on our regular cast. Bye.